to be successful in a market like Boston, big numbers, San Francisco, you know, the Bay Area, big numbers, you have to have a strong lead generation system. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Willie Mendrell. Willie is a real estate investor in Boston and uses the Burr method to acquire and hold on to triplexes in one of the most expensive markets in the world. In this episode, Willie would tell us how to finance your properties using a portfolio loan and how you can start investing in an expensive market as well. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! All right, Willie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure, Willie, Willie Mandrell. I'm a buy and hold real estate investor uh, here in the Boston area. Been operating in this area for roughly 13, 14 years, 2006. I was 23 when I bought my first multifamily, became a landlord. 2006, for those of you who are familiar, stock market crash, 2007, housing market, 2008, not too long after that. Rode the market you know, all the way down to the bottom, but don't regret it at all. Learned some valuable lessons, bought some really good investments in 2012, 2013, 2014, and you know here we are in 2020, and it's a different animal. We're starting to uh, we're starting to look at are we going to hit this next recession again? So been into about 13, 14 years. Love every bit of the business, and you know that's kind of me. Yeah, definitely a lot of interesting questions going forward, especially you know with the uncertainty with the market how it is now. And you mentioned that you started your real estate investing journey at 23. Right. That sounds like a really young age to get started with real estate investing. Do you want to tell us the story of how you even got started? It is. You know, I went to school for finance. I went to Northeastern University here in Boston. And my grandmother had been in the business for years. And when I got out of college, she was the one that kind of pushed me into buying that first multifamily. I wanted to just buy the condo. I wanted to have the easy lifestyle. I wanted to have, you know, no maintenance, you know, the swimming pool, the, the gym in the building. And she said no for the long term you know, look at buying something with multiple units in it, look at buying something where somebody else is paying your mortgage. And I'm glad I listened to her. I bought that first one right out of college at 23. I remember negotiating the sales price and my wife actually went to Northeastern as well. And I remember negotiating the deal in our dorm room. It was kind of funny. I didn't really take it seriously. Now I'm kind of looking back at it, you know, years later, I'm just kind of like, I really kind of took it as a joke, but ended up landing the property. And it was sweet. It was one of the best things I ever did. One of the smartest things I ever did, listening to her, listening to learning from her experience. I think my mortgage at the time was roughly 2,500 bucks. I was collecting roughly 1,700 bucks. So I don't know, roughly 65% of my mortgage was being paid by somebody else. And, you know, a light bulb went off and it was just kind of like, this makes sense. The property appreciated for another, you know, six months or so before, you know, the market crashed. But I remember, you know, listening to, you know, our professors in finance classes and, uh, I remember taking a couple, I, one of my favorite topics in, in, in school was economics. And, you know, 
we listened to Warren Buffett and how he was saying that, you know, when people are running scared, he was being greedy. And when people were being greedy, he was, you know, being fearful. And I thought about that. I thought about that a lot. And that's what prompted me to go and make some moves in 2012, 2013, 2014, when people were still uh, running away from the market. I was saying, hey, well, the same exact multifamily was going for 700 less than two years ago. Now it's selling for five. We're going to make a recovery. So, and the rents didn't decline in here in Boston at all. So it made financial sense, you know, a lot. So that was great. So you were buying in Boston where you lived. Exactly. Yeah. That's where I do the bulk of my business. I've done a couple of deals uh, out of state, but for the most part, everything is in my backyard. Yeah. And so that first deal, was that for like your own primary residence where you kind of like rented out one unit or you lived in one unit and you rented out the other units? I did. How most investors get started, you know, in terms of a house hacking strategy, uh, FHA loan, three and a half percent down, lived in one unit, tenant was paying on the other unit. And, you know, from there, it just kind of snowballs that, you know, once, you know, the market took a little bit of a dip, but, you know, I was able to encourage my wife to actually, before we got married, we'd been together for a little while and I encouraged her to go out and buy another multifamily in her name with an FHA loan as well. Uh, she went out and got a three family. I had a duplex. She had a three family. And, you know, now together we had five units. And then once we got married, we were both able to pull some cash out and now go and use that as a down payment on our single family home. So we ended up, you know, accumulating five to six units uh, with all low down payment, you know, programs. That's amazing. Did you have any issues getting like financing because you were just out of college, you know, 23 years old and they probably needed some kind of debt to income ratio to qualify for the loans? Yeah. I mean, most of the time you have to have like roughly six months of work history. So my work history wasn't an issue. My debt to income did, was a little bit of an issue. So I initially had my mother co-sign with me on the first, the first loan. She came on that loan. And then I think it was uh, several years down the line, we refinanced and took her name off of the note and off of the deed. So initially, yes, I did need the assistance. Boston's such a high price market, didn't need the assistance of you know someone else to kind of come in with me on that. Yeah. And then going into the 2008 recession, you know, you're like, you're still very, really young, you're mid twenties and you're going through probably one of the greatest financial collapses of recent history. How was that for you? And what kind of challenges did you face during that time? It was mentally tough. I mean, you, you're a new landlord, you're relatively young. I'm 20, you know, 24, 25. I'm being challenged because I'm young already. I'm being challenged because I don't know the rental business. So it was a huge learning curve. But again, I, no regrets whatsoever. It forced me to be patient. It forced me to, I think when new investors come in and let's say a new investor, and I'm not, this is not to criticize anybody. Let's say you came in the business in 2015 you're on a roller coaster ride, right? I mean, you're just the, the market's, you know, sky and and you start to do things that you wouldn't normally do because it just seems like you can't lose. Every every year the properties are 6 to 7% higher, especially here in Boston. Rents are skyrocketing 2018, 2019. Things are just going really well. For me, because I started off in a bad economic climate, it made me a more conservative, more awareful investor right from the start. I look at numbers, I crunch numbers a little bit tougher. I know that my I make my money going in. And as a real estate agent, I talk to a lot of investors as well or broker and a lot of people kind of blew my mind. I you know, this girl came into our office maybe several years ago and she actually was moving out to your area. She said, "Hey, I'm moving out to, you know, uh, the Bay Area in a couple of years or a year or so, but I'm going to buy a property here in Boston." 
and then I'm going to sell it. And, you know, the goal is to buy it for 700,000 or condo, and then I'm going to sell it for 800,000 uh, when I leave in a, in a year. And I was like, what? <laughs> where, that's not an investment. Where do you get those numbers from? But that's where the market was, right? It, was, it wasn't an investment anymore. It was strictly speculation because everyone was doing so well and things were doing so well. So again, going back to, you know, starting off in 2008, 2009, you know, those early years, it made me a better investor. It made me look at the numbers a little bit more carefully. It made me crunch the numbers a little bit better and kind of go into things that make financial sense for the long haul, right? Anything that I'm buying, and even in 2020, I'm looking at it as this is not a an appreciation play. This is something that's going to financially make sense, whether it be 2020, or even if we take a 15 to 20% dip, I'm still going to be collecting the same amount of rents. And you know the cash flow performance of the property is still going to be the same regardless. So it's the bulk of your real estate investing career in the buy and hold side versus like the flipping side or wholesaling side? It is. I've done a couple flips, but you know, and this is just my personal opinion, flips are income generating, right? They're jobs. There's this myth in real estate that somehow you need to People are like, hey, I don't, I don't want to buy. And I'm like, how come you don't you know, buy and hold? That's a great wealth building strategy. Well, my plan is to do a couple of flips and then I'm going to use that money to buy and hold. I don't know what the myth is called, but there's this myth that for some reason that that money needs to stay in real estate. And essentially, like if you flip, then you can use take that flip profits and use it to buy and hold. In reality, that flip or the profit that you made off that flip is no different than a doctor taking his salary or the you know his salary or income and using it to buy and hold real estate. There's no tax benefits. There's no benefit to flipping and then using that money to buy and hold. You still get taxed the same way as if you're self-employed. You can be in the construction business. You can be an auto body business and use that money and transfer it over to buy and hold real estate. Though there's some similarities and you, the, the learning is still you know is there. Those two businesses are, are unique. But to get back to your question, I've done a couple flips um, here in Boston. We do a lot of condo conversions. We have a uh, we build up. There's not a lot of space here, so all of everything's a three family here or triple decker. So what we're doing here a lot in Boston is we're taking the old three families and instead of having it be one deed, we are now chopping it up into three separate condo units, three separate deeds, and now individual buyers are coming back and saying, "Hey, I don't own a multifamily anymore. I own in one individual condo within that three family building." So. Same thing. It's basically just doing like three flips at one time. That's essentially what it is. Um, so we've done a couple condo conversions, done a couple flips, but my primary business, my bread and butter is that buy and hold. I'm a long-term guy. I, I've always had my mind or my eyes on the prize on the long-term. And I think true wealth is built you know, in the buy and hold space. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that one because if you're flipping houses, it's kind of like, you know, you are a broker. It's kind of like being an agent where you're only as good as your last deal. And this is like some kind of business that generates that income, but then you take that income and you truly invest it into these buy and hold assets that generate passive cash flow. Right. I know in Boston though, it's probably a very expensive market, kind of similar to how it is here in the Bay Area, New York, and Los Angeles. Right. And one of the biggest challenges that a lot of new investors have is that obviously like one is that they can't get the financing. We talked about that point already. But two is that the numbers, like the price point is so high that the cash flow doesn't really break even on your debt. I was wondering if you talked to that point and how do you bypass that challenge? So the first couple deals, so if I can back up, the first couple deals, I agree, most people are going to get in and it's going to be an FHA loan. You're probably going to buy something that's market ready. You're probably going to buy something that's move-in ready, rent ready. And you're not really, it's not a big cash flow play. It's more or less how, how can you, it's more of a hack, house hacking play, right? How can you minimize your expenses moving into that place and have your tenants pay as much as possible? And then over time, your tenants, obviously you increase the rent and they pay more of your mortgage and everything else and you pay on your expenses. Once my wife and I maximized our 
conventional lending. We maximize that hopping, getting a real estate agent, hopping on MLS, finding something that's more rent and ready. We went to a uh, the BRRRR strategy, the BRRR strategy, the buy, rehab, rent and refinance strategy. And basically what that is, for the people who are not familiar with it, is we are now looking for properties that need a substantial amount of work so we can create equity within those properties. Instead of us buying, going out and buying something that's rent ready, we're looking for something that the heating systems are bad. And that's a big deal here in Boston. It's a very cold place. The roof is leaking. The windows are drafty. There's no insulation. The foundation might be cracking a little bit. It's just really just needs a substantial amount of work. There's old knob and tube wiring or electrical. The plumbing is bad. Those are the things that we can go in, buy at a deep discount and create value over time. So that's what we're doing. That's the bulk of our portfolio in the last five or six years is that buy rehab, rent and refinance strategy versus going on the market and buying something new. Because you're right, it's very difficult to find something that cash flows that's just already rent ready, right? You have to actually go in and create value. And then, Sean, it's a numbers game, right? So if what new investors don't understand, especially here in in an area like Boston is, the reason I'm able to survive and the reason I'm able to be successful in this market is because I understand it's a numbers game. People look at the end result and they say, okay, Willie just bought 20 units this year. Well, he didn't look at 20 units, right? I didn't go and look at 20 units. I'm talking to every single real estate agent. I'm talking to every single wholesaler. I'm talking, I'm going to every single networking meeting. I'm blasting out that I'm a real estate investor to the world. And with that, I'm probably buying, I'm probably looking at, or let's say I'm probably buying three deals for every hundred that I put into my lead generation pipeline, right? I mean, I'm getting a call and somebody saying, hey, Willie, there's a deal that I have. Come take a look at it or run numbers on it. For every hundred of those, I'm probably buying three. So to be successful in a market like Boston, big numbers, San Francisco, you know, the Bay Area, big numbers, you have to have a strong lead generation system. That's amazing. And yeah, you're basically taking a fixer, but instead of flipping it, you're just keeping it for yourself. That's essentially what it is. It's no different. In the flip, you're basically going in and you're rehabbing the building and creating equity. And then you're selling that equity for cash. That's all you're doing, essentially. Only thing I'm doing is I'm basically going back to the bank and I'm saying, I've built in this equity and I rented it out for a substantial amount and the rents cover my new mortgage. I want to take my cash back out and keep going. And that's all I'm doing. So when you're buying these properties, are you financing them with like a hard money loan and then refinancing out with some kind of, I don't even know, how do you, how would you refinance that kind of property? Sure. So there in the beginning, what you'll do if you're brand new and you're doing your first burst strategy, number one, you'd probably, burst strategy is going to be really difficult if you don't already own several units already, right? So you have to have some type of portfolio, some type of resume that you can present to a hard money lender to begin with. So you have a couple properties, your own, you know, six, seven, 10 units or whatever it may be. And you want to say, okay, now I'm kind of stuck out, you know, I'm getting out of my conventional financing. I want to get into the, the burst strategy. Initially, what you would probably do is you would probably find a good deal and you would use a hard money lender for the primary financing, the purchase of that property. And then the hard money lender would also give you a construction loan uh, as well. And what we've done in the past is we would go to a private money lender, which initially is probably an uncle, an aunt, a cousin, your mother, your father, somebody that you know, and say, hey, I need $50,000 or $100,000 down. Auntie, I can give you 5% on your money over the next six months. If you can give me this private money loan, that private money loan is used as a down payment for your hard money lender. And then the hard money lender gives you the purchase price and the construction financing. Once you get really good at that and you have a little bit of a resume, auntie and uncle are still there. 
and you can use them again because they're going to be like, wow, this is great. You know, I'm, I'm helping you out. Plus, I earned a great five or six percent on return on my investment. Now you can go to a more conventional lender. Hard money lenders are really expensive. They're probably, and again, I'm not sure what the rates are in your area, but I would imagine somewhere around 12 and three, 12% and three points. Once you have a little bit of a resume, you can actually go use construction loans. So you can go to like a local portfolio lender, you know, and your local bank, your Eastern, you know, your Western, whatever your local bank is in that particular area and get a construction loan, which actually is a lot cheaper than the hard money. Hard money is probably 12 and a couple points. Construction money right now is probably 5%. Yeah. So I kind of missed that last part. So at the very end, when you are done with the project, how do you refinance out? Sorry, I I left that part out. So once you're done, you are going back to a primary lender and you're basically saying, I'll give you quick numbers here in in Boston. You're basically saying, hey, I have a a property that I purchased for, and again, the numbers are not this clean, but for expediency, I bought the property for 500,000. I put roughly a quarter million dollars into it or $250,000. And now the property is worth a million dollars. So I have a 75% loan to value ratio. I own a property that's worth now worth a million bucks based on the rents and the comps in the area. And with my purchase price and construction, I'm into it for roughly $750,000. you are now going back to a primary lender. It might be, again, that Eastern Bank or that portfolio lender and basically just refinancing yourself out of that hard money loan. It gets you your aunt's money back and everybody else. And you're pushing all of your debt over into a permanent financing vehicle and then paying back all the high risk debt, your hard money lender, your private money lender and everything else, if that makes sense. Absolutely. makes sense. By the way, next time you need a loan, let us know. I work for a hard money lending company. Do you? Yeah, I work for a hard money lending company based in San Francisco. And we usually do about 10 in one. But, you know, everything is different. And definitely do us a call when, uh, when we're done. Right. No, I, de- I definitely will. No, 10 in, 10 in one and 10 in one is solid. Can, uh, like I said, we're, you know, I've seen some of the hard money lenders somewhere around in 14 sometimes. So that's nuts. <laughs> that is very nuts. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, they wouldn't be in business if they weren't getting it. So, I mean, there there are, you know, people out there where it, it just blows my mind. Sometimes I'll look at a HUD and the lender will be making more money than the actual <laughs> the actual developer in the project, which is actually crazy. But no, I'll definitely keep that in mind. Sounds good. And do you want to talk more about how to get a portfolio loan? Because I understand, you know, after you refinance and if you don't have too many loans, you just get a regular a conventional loan or whatever. But if you have over 10 properties, you can't just get that conventional loan that they sell to Fannie Mae. How do you get a portfolio loan and what are the usual rates for those? Sure. So a portfolio loan is, it's a little different. You're right. You can't get more than 10 loans if you're financing it in your own name. I no longer finance anything in my own name. I actually don't own any property in my name. My primary residence is not in my own name. It's actually in my wife's name. And the reason I do is I keep myself kind of free and clear, but all of my property are now held in LLC. So a limited liability company, it's 123 Main Street LLC. Willie Mandrell owns 123 Main Street LLC, and the LLC owns the particular 123 Main Street, the actual property itself. So if you're looking at a you know a portfolio lender or your local lender, they typically don't have the same restrictions as your residential financing, right? I can get as many properties and millions of dollars in loans right now on several different properties. And your requirements are a little different. When you're looking at residential property, it's more about your debt, your personal income, and your personal finances. Versus when you're looking at a portfolio lender, they're more concerned about the property's performance itself. They're basically saying, what rents are you going to get from this property? What expenses are going to come from you know, this building? And what is the end result? And if the end result is, is solid, 
They do look at you personally as a personal guarantor on the first couple of deals. You do have to have somewhat of a resume. And if you don't have a resume, the way I got started, the way a lot of other investors, the way I help people get started as well, as I allow them to piggyback on my resume. So you go and find another investor. You have a great deal. You're not sure how to get the financing. You want to use a portfolio lender. Sometimes you have to, you know, the same way my mother co-signed for me on that first deal, you have to find another investor to co-sign or be a key partner or a key player or a key piece. I can't remember what, I know the term is KP. I can't remember what the uh, key partner on that loan to help you qualify for that particular deal. And hopefully that makes sense. I know I went around in circles there, but. Absolutely. And I mean, are you going like Wells Fargo for the kind of loan or what kind of banks offer portfolio loans? No, no. I try to stay away from the big national banks. I want somebody who's local. And again, I wish I had an example of somebody that was in your area, but for us, you know, we have, you know, our local community lenders. Like I live in the, you know, the city of Quincy, you might use like a Quincy federal or, you know, a Needham bank or a Wellesley bank, whatever the the local credit unions. And the reason I do that is because there's more of a relationship there. If I go to Wells Fargo, or if I use a Quicken mortgage, they are the big box. They're like, it's like going to Walmart, right? They have a a lot of things, but none of them are really custom fit, right? I'd rather go to the tailor. You might pay slightly more, but you're going to get the custom fit suit, right? Or the custom fit, whatever it is that that's tailored towards you. There's going to be a relationship there. When you go to the big box banks and Bank of America and Citizens Bank and the Wells Fargo, they have maybe five or six, maybe not even that many templates. And they basically say they have somebody in the loan processing and they say, hey, does Willie fit into template number one, template number two, template number three? And if not, they kick the loan back out and they say, Willie's not qualified. Whereas you can have a relationship with a local lender and they say, forget the templates. What is Willie and is he a good client and is he he's somebody that we want to have a relationship? And if it is, we have a, you know, a rough outline, but we can massage it. It doesn't have to be a perfect fit. We can make it work for Willie if Willie is going to be a long-term client of us. And those are relationships that I, I'd like to build and I encourage other investors to build is Bank of America is great for checking accounts. I have all of my business checking accounts with Bank of America, but I do not use them for mortgages 100%. So what kind of terms do you usually see in these portfolio loans? Gotcha. Good question. Um, so a little different than residential lending. Once you cross over into that, you know, that portfolio side, once you're using commercial financing, that's what it is. And let me clarify when I say, sorry, if I'm you know, circling around your question here, but when I say commercial financing, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going out and buying 30 unit buildings. I'm still buying two, three, four unit buildings in a residential space. I'm just using commercial lending to do that. And you can certainly do that. Commercial lending doesn't necessarily mean supermarkets. It means that you're going out and you're buying something with an LLC versus your own name. So where do they differ? You're not going to get a 30-year fixed commercial you know, uh, note. That's not the way commercial lending works. You're probably going to get a five to 10-year fixed rate, and then it'll be adjustable after that for a period. It'll be a 30-year amortization, meaning you can pay the debt, you can stretch the debt out over 30 years, but the note or the loan itself is only going to be five to 10 years, and it helps the bank kind of manage their interest rate risk. The rates tend to be let's call it a point higher than what your typical residential rates would be. Let's say if today your residential rates, if you're going into an FHA loan, and again, I don't do these on a regular basis, but let's say you're somewhere around three and a half percent, you're probably getting somewhere about four and a half percent if you're on the commercial lending side. They do have a prepayment penalty. You're not going to see that often on a residential loan, but on a commercial loan that you're buying investment property, you may see a short three year prepayment penalty. The lender obviously wants you to stay with them. And there are some other things that you want to look out for. And I advise all my clients this, and I have some family that's getting into the side of the business as well. On the residential side, there are a lot of 
how do I put this? There are a lot of things that protect you. There's RESPA law. There's the, you know, a series of laws that where you have to receive the HUD or the settlement statement three days prior to actually closing. You have to be able to review it. Those things do not exist on the commercial side. You have to look out for you. You have to make sure that you're looking out for your HUD statement and making sure that there's no errors or cost errors on there. You have to actually request the HUD or the settlement statement prior to, or you won't see it until the day of closing or at the closing table. So you have to understand that the commercial side is a little bit of the Wild West. There are some standards, but each bank is going to be different. There is nothing uniform. They're going to have their own processes, and you have to be really savvy about the business itself. I encourage most people to get started on the residential side, maximize what you can do on that side, and then go to the commercial lending side. Are there any requirements or additional fees? Like, you know, for hard money loans, do you have like a one or 3% origination fee? And this is where the relationships come in, right? If you went to a Quicken Loans, they may have an origination fee that exists all the time. It may just be 1% regardless of your volume. It's very difficult to build a relationship there. So I've paid up to 1% of an origination fee. And I've also had loans where I pay absolutely nothing. The 1% is usually new relationships. The nothing is... Willie's done several deals with us. He's a good client. His loans are paid on time. He's you know, got a substantial amount of cash and reserves with us. He keeps his security deposits with us. Banks love that stuff. And that's the little stuff that building relationships with local lenders can help you with. It's just keeping five, $6,000 in security deposits with them helps them meet their, you know, their federal reserve guidelines and everything in terms of money they have to have on tap. They love the deposits. They can lend it back out. So I keep my operating account with them, or excuse me, operating account stays with Bank of America for various reasons, but I keep a reserve account with them and then all of, all of my security deposits with them. And because of that relationship, I go back to them and say, hey, this is deal number three. I don't want to play hardball, but at the same time, I don't want to pay that origination point any longer. You know, the relationship is there. You guys know me, you know, I'm a good client. You know, I pay my bills on time. You know, I have, you know, substantial amount of cash with you. And most of the time they're saying, yeah, go ahead and get rid of that point. We'd rather have the business in house than to, uh, for, you know, to, to hit you with a, over the head for a few thousand bucks. And is like the loan to value like 80%? You can go, typically you're going to find 75%, but again, relationship-based, you can go up to 80% in a lot of cases. Got it. And I remember before you were saying how you usually use like private money lender for your gap funding. So for those of you who are listening who don't know what that is, it's something you have like a hard money loan and you still need to put down 10 or 20% for down payment. That's where the private money loans come in for gap funding. Have you ever had a situation where you know the project just didn't go right and you had to have that awkward conversation? And if so, how did that play out? I fortunately have not had to do that. And I've had some projects go wrong. I recently did a condo conversion. One of the reasons I'm getting away from it is, you know, I lost, you know, between my partner and I, we lost roughly 80,000 bucks on our last condo conversion. It was a tough pill to swallow. But the reason I get away from it is not because I, you know, it's kind of like I'm walking away from failure, just because I was trying to do too much. It really wasn't my bread and butter. So we lost our personal money, but I have never lost money of an investor or private money, a lender. And the reason I feel confident going into some of these things is because, you know, I also have the assets to back it up. So that's why, you know, I, I sometimes the flipping business is a little worrisome for me. For the people who don't have any assets to back it up, I always told my partners that they wouldn't lose money. Or my, when I say my partners, I mean my private money lenders. I call them partners. But if there was a situation where I lost $50,000 in a deal, I would go back and tap into one of the equity in one of my portfolio properties and refinance or do what I had to do to make sure that the loss was mine and not of a private money lender. 
For me, the relationships are too important. If I say I'm going to do something, I have to do it. You know, Boston's a small community. I think the country as a whole, in terms of you know successful investors, is pretty you know a pretty small community. So I make sure that I perform and I do the things that I say I'm going to do. So yet I have yet to take a loss on a on a private lending side. I've done a couple had a couple losses personally, but if that was ever the case, I would almost personally guarantee it, tap into my own personal funds, tap into some equity I have in one of the rentals, get that money back to that investor. If there was a situation where it was, let's say it's $50,000, they may not have earned any interest or may not you know, had a gain on their money, but I'm going to make them whole if I can and make sure that when things improve and I need to tap into other resources down the line, that there's still an opportunity for me or still that money is still accessible for me because I stood by what I said I was going to do. That's great. And, you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of the investors who hear this are going to be very happy and feel very comfortable uh, investing with you in the future. And that's definitely knock on wood so that this doesn't happen to you in the future. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Now, when it comes to getting deals in the first place, what are you doing to market and you know get the properties in your deal flow? So, you know, that's a good question. So when I first started out, I was doing a little bit of everything. I was cold calling, door knocking. I mean, I was hanging up bandit signs in the middle of the night. You know, I was doing mails. I had tons of lead pages out there. Um, I've tried everything. And then, you know, and that's the way it is when you first start off, you know, and no matter what anybody's going to tell you, you're going to try everything because you like every every shiny object out there seems to be the thing. And you heard, you know, this guy on Instagram is doing this and he had a lot of success with it. So you think you're going to have a lot of success with it. One thing I try to tell new investors is, you know, pick a couple different strategies and focus, really learn them and learn them well. So when I figure that out, my bread and butter became driving for dollars. And for anybody who's not familiar with that is I have a couple. So, that, so to back up a little bit, know your market. I was doing all of Boston as well. At some point, I was just trying to find deals everywhere. And it didn't make a lot of sense because their markets are so different and so unique and so diverse that I really couldn't understand them all. So I selected three markets within the Boston city of Boston. And I said, this is going to be my niche. These are the markets that make the most financial sense for me. I think there's the most opportunity there. So I defined my geographic niche first. And then I went down and I said, let me define my marketing niche. And for driving for dollars, for those of you who are not familiar, is Dorchester is one of the communities within Boston where I have literally been on every single street I basically printed off a map from our city's website. I went to Staples and I blew up the map and I think it was a three by four, cost me 11 bucks. And I plugged it up, put pins on my wall and I basically used a marker and I, every single side street, every, I don't care if there's two houses on the street, I've been on the street and I know this community inside and out. And what I was doing when I was driving is I was basically looking for ugly homes. I was basically looking for, Hey, this nice house, nice house, wait, nice house. Okay. That house Windows are bad. Roof is bad. The chimney looks like it's going to blow over any second. The roof is different colors because it's been patched so many times. The mail is overgrowing out of the mailbox, meaning somebody probably doesn't live there. The grass is overgrown. All the signs that this house is being neglected. And I would jot that down. I would use my voice recorder and I would say, hey, one, two, three Main Street. This is the house that I want. I would go back home and then I would look up the owner's name and contact information and I would do everything I could to mail them and call them and knock on the door next door and say, hey, do you know your neighbor? Is your neighbor out of state? Are they looking to sell? The reason I love driving for dollars is because 
you can buy probate list and you can buy eviction list and you can buy, but it's not proprietary, right? That list that I have, there is, I don't know that there are too many other people that have been on, there are people that have been here for 25 years, 30 years, and have never been on every single street within this community. That list is mine and mine only. And if you can build something like this, you have a lot less competition with other investors within the neighborhood because most of them are going to go out and buy a list that's not proprietary. They're going to go out and buy a list that anybody can subscribe to and then mail or cold call those people. So that was my bread and butter for years. Now, today, it is basically just networking. I've been in the business for long enough that people know who I am. I close when I say I'm going to close. I perform when I say I'm going to perform. I pay people back when I need to be paid back. I close loans. I refi when I re- say I'm going to refi. And just by doing what you say that you're going to do and performing well, you build up a reputation. And now it is not to sound arrogant, but it's less of me doing out and going out and trying to grab leads than it is people bringing leads to me and saying, hey, you know, what do you think about this? So how do people get to know you in the first place? Are you going out to like local meetup groups? Good question. I was doing that for a while. Meetup groups are excellent. And then what really helped me take, you know, make it take off is I actually started my own. It is now Wealth Builder Nation. We are in five different cities with five more planned for the end of the year. But it started off as Boston Wealth Builders. Boston Wealth Builders, I just went in and I wanted to teach people. I started up on, on meetup.com. And the goal was just basically to teach people what I was doing and, you know, how I was buying properties. And for me, it was uh, it was weird because it was two reasons. One is the group started because as an entrepreneur and you know your listeners or you know somebody in real estate, they may understand exactly what I'm talking about when I say this. But as an entrepreneur, as, as somebody in real estate, especially if you're full time, it can be very lonely. There are a lot of kids that I grew up with and family members that didn't really understand where I was coming from. Right when I'm start, I'm talking about portfolio building and wealth building and long term and amortization and using leverage and bank. That's not things that, you know, that's not what most people are talking about. 26, 27, 30. They're talking about how do I get through Monday through Friday? And then how do I, you know, maximize my time partying on the weekends? So I was extremely lonely. And one of the reasons built Boston Wealth Builders came about is because I was looking for other people who thought like me, who had that wanted to build the things that I were building. I was looking for the long term, stumbled across meetup.com, went to a couple of events and the reason I started my own is because I found that this may be a couple of years in, I found that people that most RIAs or most real estate investor associations operate in the same hotel room on the same night of the month, every month, right? It's the third Thursday of the month in the Hilton Hotel downtown, right? And because of that, you end up having the same group of people show up to that same meeting every single Thursday night or the third third of the month. The reason is if I have two kids and I'm home on a Thursday, if I can't make it this month, there's a good chance my kids are not just going to go away. They're going to be there next month as well, and I'm not going to be able to make it. So when I started Boston Wealth Builders, I wanted to diversify the people that I was meeting and the groups that I was connecting with. So we don't do it at the same location on the same night. We have events. We have rehab tours on a Saturday morning. We do webinars on a Tuesday night. We have you know, a rehab tour on a Wednesday night. And we do it in Dorchester. We do it in Somerville. We do it north of the city. We do it you know, west of the city. And we meet a, a very diverse group of people, people that you, know, you may have not been able to meet if you had it on that typical RIA schedule. So that's how I've been able to build you know, a network as well, starting off going to the meetings. And then it really kind of took off when I started my own. There was roughly 2,500 people in Boston Wealth Builders when I decided, hey, now is time to take it to a national scale. And Boston Wealth Builders became Wealth Builder Nation. And we're in Atlanta, Chicago, Austin. 
and we're making our way out closer to you as well. <laughs> yeah. So I guess you have representatives who are hosting on your behalf, right? Yes, yes, yes. So exactly. So we'll have, I'm the overarching, uh, you know, administrator of it, so to speak. They, they, the brand is there, but we do have local boots on the ground, so to speak, that are other investors, other rehabbers, other wholesalers, other lenders like yourself that are within the local community as well and, you know, help me host those meetings. So it helps in both ways, right? I take the administrative side, the branding side and everything off of their table, help them with their branding of their, you know, whether they're a real estate agent or a hard money lender or whatever. And it helps me because obviously I get the, the deals if I want to go into another community and the national recognition as well. That's great. I actually host a meetup group here in the South Bay as well. And oh, nice. we were doing two events per month. Uh, obviously, because of you know, shelter in place, we we're no longer doing that for the foreseeable future. But you're right, it absolutely does help increase your network because when I first got started, I was just going in as a newbie, right? And nobody wants to talk to you when you haven't done any real deals. And then to go into uh, hosting the events, now suddenly like everyone wants to talk to you because you're the host. Right, no, that's exactly it. And have you had any challenges? Like, are you converting it all to virtual now that we have this like, shelter in place and you know, healthcare? We have been. We're having our first rehab tour, that, excuse me, this this weekend. I'm not entirely sure how it's going to go. We normally see roughly, let's call it 100 plus people RSVP, maybe 60% of, 60 of those people actually show up. We are looking at maybe 21 RSVPs as of today. So I think people are still a little bit hesitant, but I wanted to put it out there because I know some people are a little kind of antsy to get back out into the, you know, into the world and kind of meet people. And obviously when we do this rehab tour, we'll have mask and, and you know i made sure it was one of the larger properties so we can stand up substantial you know a distance away from one another as well so we'll see how it goes but yes to answer your question since march we've done nothing but webinars and you know in virtual events that's great yeah i actually like your idea of not having it be at the exact same time every single time because you're right like you do see the same crowds over and over again and, you know, like you said, if your kid has karate class on Tuesday nights, then he's not going to be able to like go to your event next month. Right. So, yeah, it's really good to switch it up. And then also to not just have the same like, OK, some guy comes in and talks for an hour. That's great. But you can also get the same information from listening to a podcast like this one. Right. Right. Exactly. Or watching a YouTube video. So personally, I had two different ones. One was like a straight like meet a bar. We just talk for two hours. And those are actually more popular than my presentation ones. They absolutely are. They're more when you can meet some people. And one thing, if I can give you a, give you or your tip, you know, listeners a tip, if somebody's looking to start their own meetup group, one thing that is absolutely just help my group, just kind of people just love what, when, when, they, when they come is I used to go into to networking meetings and, you know, I'm not the person that can just walk up to somebody and say, hey, hey, what are you guys talking about? Let me just hop in, especially if you're there and conversations are already flying. If it's just you and you're one of the first people there, it's kind of easy. But once things are kind of going, it's very difficult to, you know, to just hop into a conversation. And I realized that and was one of the things I hated about going to networking meetings. So as the organizer, I never get too in-depth in a conversation any longer. I am always looking for the new person walking into the room. And my goal is to make them feel comfortable and make them immediately, hey, how are you doing, Bill? Nice to meet you. What are you into? You're a real estate agent? You're a lender? Who can I introduce you to? I'm talking to them for 30 seconds and then I'm immediately connecting them with somebody else in the room and making that warm into introduction right then and there. And with that, I found that you get more people to stay. They enjoy themselves a lot more. They're immediately warmed up. So it's a great way to, as an organizer, to make everyone feel included, right? I'm always searching the room 
for that person who doesn't look like they're there. They look like they're standing on the side. They have a beer in their hand. They, they look awkward. They're very introvert, right? And I go up to them and I make sure that they feel comfortable. And I almost push them into a conversation with somebody else in the room, somebody that I'm familiar with and make sure that they're making it. They leave with a connection before that night is over. Awesome. I mean, I would really wish that another host in my past would have done that for me, right? Yeah. You walk in there, you don't know anything about real estate investing. You want to meet all these people and you hear these stories of, wow, these guys are doing a million dollars a year. Right. Like, what are you going to do? They say, hi, I'm new. Teach me everything you know, right? That's an awkward conversation. So yeah, having the host come up and do their job to make the introduction would be very helpful in the future. Yeah. And you just meet them and there's always somebody there that's new, right? And if, you know, I'm not going to, you know, connect the new agent with the million dollar producer or the new investor with, you know, you try to find somebody else there that is also new and say, Hey, you know, this person's brand new to the business as well. They're trying to learn their way. How can you guys help each other? How can you guys learn from one another? And, you know, and just get that conversation started. And then, so I, like I said, I never, you know, I used to hate it when you see the host and you're like, it's the only person you recognize from the website, right? And you see them in the corner and they're in this in-depth conversation for a half an hour and you just love to introduce yourself, but you can't really just walk up to them. So I'm constantly as a host kind of circling the room, looking for that person who looks like they don't feel comfortable in, in doing everything that I can to make them feel comfortable and make them feel included. And it's worked wonders for the retention and the repeat attendance of our events. Yeah, I definitely have to keep in mind when we start having live events in the future. Okay, so one of the biggest challenges that I've seen with like the new Zoom calls and Zoom meetups that we have due to shelter in place is that it's just a presentation and then everyone else is kind of like, you know, camera off and just not really paying attention. You know, that's like kind of like the most important part of a meetup is you want to talk to individuals. Have you found some kind of solution to introduce people one way or the other? Unfortunately, no. I mean, the only solution I can is I've hopped on some smaller ones, but after you get to call it 15 people, it just gets ridiculous at that point, right? Exactly. 15, 20 people is just really hard to manage a conversation. So no, over the last three months, we've had some larger webinars, but no, that is a really tough hurdle to get over with the larger webinars. If you have 50 people log on, not everybody's going to get a chance to say something you're going to. And again, I got away from it because you were giving the more experienced people more time and it just seemed like it was really unfair. So we have just done straight webinars and then I've done some smaller like we recently did a women in real estate event. We were brought on three young ladies who are, you know, own a brokerage, own rental property, and another was a developer, and just kind of brought them in. Them have a discussion about what it's like to be, a, you know, a female in real estate and the challenges that they faced and everything else. But other than that, it's been webinars. You know, the Zoom meetings are really difficult to, uh, you know, once you get over a certain number of people, it's just difficult to have a conversation. Right. And you know, going back to your original investing strategy, I know you do mostly invest in Boston. Is there a reason now you never try to invest out of state where maybe cash flow might have been higher? That's a good question. So why Boston? Boston is, number one, it's my backyard. And I, I do believe that you should invest in something that you truly understand. I know a lot of other investors, you know, there are a lot of investors that invest out of state. You know, they look at, you know, cash flow numbers. The reason I like Boston not only because I live here and I grew up here and I really know the neighborhood, but also because we have the economics are solid, right? And I, I tell people, I've probably said this a thousand times already, but if the market takes a 10% dip, but your kid gets accepted to Harvard University, are you going to find the money to send your kid to Harvard? Absolutely. If your kid gets accepted to MIT, but the market is down 10%, you're still going to find the money to send your kid to MIT, 
Northeastern University, Suffolk University, Wentworth, this, the pharmacy schools. We have some of the best institutions here, some of the best hospitals here in the world. And with that, people come and they stay from all over the world and they don't leave. Our population is growing. There's a serious demand for housing. I think it was just a couple of years ago, the mayor called for roughly 70,000 new units that were needed in terms of housing within the city of Boston. So there is a strong demand. And even when the rest of the country takes a little bit of a dip, Boston doesn't seem to take that same, right? I mean, you had, might have Florida or Arizona or some of the you know more communities where people you know tend to flock to when things are good, pull away hard when things are not so good. Boston is not one of those communities. It tends to be pretty stable. And you couple that with our rent growth, it is absolutely insane. It's just a great market to be in. Very tough to get into, but once you're in, it's just a great market to be in. So that's why you know, I've looked at some other markets, I've tangled, I've done some things, but, but my primary focus is that Boston market, just because it's so, there's still so much opportunity here. Our housing stock is super old as well. Most of our housing stock was built a hundred years ago. So there are a lot of homes that still need, you know, considerable amount of work and opportunity to kind of come in at a decent price. I wouldn't say a low price because here in Boston, nothing's low, but a, a decent price and still create, you know, some equity for the long term. So I would say at the end of the day, it's the economics, it's the jobs, the schools and the rent and population growth that we still have here. Can you talk about a typical deal that you usually do in Boston? Like what type of property is it? One unit, two unit, three unit? purchase price, rehab costs, as well as final value and how much you're rent for? Yeah. So typical deal, what I'm looking for right now, within one of my three markets, I would say purchase price roughly 600000 and that'd be a three family. I try to stay away from the twos. The twos just don't seem to cash flow. You need that third unit to really make mat, you know, make it make sense. You know, A lot of times I'm looking for two units will cover all of my expenses, mortgage taxes, insurance, water, maintenance, everything else. And then I'm usually either, I'm usually pulling money out for the third unit or breaking even if there's a vacancy, you know, for that particular month. That's typically what I'm shooting for. So purchase price somewhere around 600. And that is usually something it needs windows, electricity, uh, electrical is outdated, roof is bad, defer, a lot of deferred maintenance, probably needs a couple of new heating systems. I'm probably looking to put, again, keeping numbers clean, 200,000 into it. And at the end of the day, I have an ARV or an after repair value of roughly $1 million. So I'm into it for an 80-20 ratio. I can now go back to the bank and say, can I get permanent financing on this? I have an asset that's worth a million bucks. I owe 800,000 on it. And they typically say, yeah, okay, let's you know do a cash out refi, get my debt, pay off all my lenders. And now I basically created roughly $200,000 in equity for myself plus Typical property, at, you know, after the refi, I would say you're probably pulling in roughly fifteen hundred bucks or five hundred dollars a door on that, you know, that particular deal. So not a huge cash flow play, huge equity play. You know, like I said, just created a roughly two hundred thousand bucks. Not a huge cash flow play, but again, you know, those are your typical numbers here in Boston. Yeah, and if you're breaking even, at least then you know you're at least increasing the cash flow every single deal you do. So so good. Exactly, you're increasing the cash flow, and then. The other thing is with the rents increase, you know, the rent increases here, it's annual. I mean, you know, 5% on, I mean, if you're collecting close to, you know, our typical three bedroom apartment is renting right now for 28 to three grand. So, I mean, even a 5% increase on that every year across three units is, you know, it's pretty substantial, right? You're increasing your cash flow, you know, each and every year by a good chunk of change. And if you have 50 units, you know, then it's it's pretty substantial. So, you know, yeah, those are our typical numbers here in Boston. Oh, wow. So it's three grand per unit. 
per unit. Yeah, per unit. Yeah, I'd say dude, we're looking at three bedrooms and that that's on the lower end. Those are in our C markets, rental markets. Those markets, you know, like I said, some of the higher price markets, some markets right outside of the universities. I mean, you can have two bedrooms going for three grand. You might have, you know, three bedrooms going for 4,500. You know, I mean, the rents here are absolutely insane. And for $200,000, are you basically going down to studs? A little less than that. I would say it wouldn't be a complete gut rehab. The reason you wouldn't, this is one of those sticky situations, like you hope the city of Boston never sees this video. (laughs) But no, so basically the rule is if you go down to the studs, then you need a fire alarm and a sprinkler system installed, right? If you're going to do, if you're going to rehab a building, I'm not sure if the law is there, is similar, but if you're going to go down to the studs, you have to install a fire system and a fire alarm system and a sprinkler system. Those two systems alone can run you 30 to 40,000 bucks. So a lot of times what you're trying to do is you're trying to rehab it, but not get over that 50% mark, right? You're going to, instead of tearing down all the walls and it may, may seem pretty silly, will allow like a strip for the electrician to run new electrical. And then we'll patch that strip back. That way, the majority of the walls are still there, right? And a lot of times we're operating with old hardwood floors that you can refinish. You don't really want to pull those out. A lot of times the siding is, you know, old, you know, cedar wood side and you can keep that and stuff like that. So I would say 200,000 is an extensive rehab, but it's not exactly a gut down to the studs rehab. How long would you say it would take to do that kind of work? Let's say our typical rehab runs maybe three to four months, maybe six months if it's, I would say three to four months and then maybe another two months for lease up. So I'm probably into the property. I usually go back to the bank, an excellent question. In terms of what loans I'm getting, I'm getting what's called a temp to perm loan. And a lot of times, and that's a lot of times if you get the temp to perm loan, maybe you might not have to refi depending on what strategy you're using and everything else. But temp to perm loan basically says, we're going to give you the purchase price. We're also going to give you the construction money. We're going to give you 12 months to rehab this property. And during that 12 months, we're only going to charge you interest on the money. And then after that, it'll convert to an interest and principal loan, assuming that you're going to have the rents you know, leased up and everything else from there. So I usually go get a 12-month construction period. Deal probably only takes me about six, three months to four months to you know do the construction, another two months to lease up. And then I basically have a good chunk um, where I'm only paying interest on my loan, maybe another six months where I'm basically just raking in cash flow because there's no principal pay down on the loan. I'm only paying the interest on that. Yeah, makes sense. And when you're buying these properties, do you ever have any issues with rent control and dealing with the existing tenants? We don't have rent control, thank God, in Boston. If we did, <laughs> it would be a completely different business. I'm not sure. Yeah, we've had a lot of talk about it. There has been... You know, it's been mentioned. A lot of attorneys have been fighting it. A lot of uh, you know landlords have been fighting it, but we do not have that here. And that's part of the reason that the rents have gone up so much. I mean, there's just a serious demand. I, I don't. I think rent control would actually, if the mayor allowed that to go through, there would be this counter message, right? If you're saying, hey, I need a bunch of units. We don't have enough housing right now. We have more demand than we do housing available, but we're also going to try to control what you can collect for those rentals. It's a very mixed message and I'm not sure how it would play you know, play out here. Makes sense. Well, Willie, this has been a very fantastic conversation and you know, you've been in this business for 14 years now, which is a very, you know, relatively long time. And I'm sure there's a lot of new investors who are out there who want to do a very similar strategy to what you're doing, which is the dream, right? They're buying and holding in a very expensive market like Boston. What tips do you have to give to our new investors who want to get into business? Sure. I just, you know, when you're first getting in, a couple different things. Maximize that 
those conventional loan programs, right? If you can get in for three and a half percent, you know, in a lot in Massachusetts, and I'm pretty sure they have them in a lot, a lot of other cities as well. We have loan programs that you know state funded where you can get in for three percent, you know, or five percent conventional. Ask all the questions. Mortgage brokers are there to help you out to answer your questions, to prepare you for lending, not just when you're ready for the loan, but also to answer your questions, to prepare you. Ask a lot of questions, learn the business. It's a great business. Maximize your conventional financing before you start getting into you know more creative things. But think long-term. A lot of investors and a lot of people don't think about 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, you know, 10 years for me in this business, 15 years almost in this business has blown by. And I'm glad I started as early as I did because I'm in a much better financial place today to weather the storm. There's a lot of people with 36 to 40 million Americans out of work right now. And there are very few of us that are not worried about anything. Like all my tenants are paying my rent and most of those are paid by subsidies from the city. So the rental business is a great business. We're always going to need housing. People are always going to need a place to live, buy land. They're not making it anymore. Famous quote. I mean, it's a great, great business. Sean, if I can plug the, you know, the book really quickly, I, I'm writing a book. It's, it's going to be released September 24th. It's called Cashflow Secrets. And that's exactly what this is about. It's about all the different things that I didn't understand getting into the business, you know, all the things that I should have been doing in 2010, 2011, 2012 to kind of ramp up my business that took me so long. I've shared all these different cash flow secrets within that book to help people kind of push further, move faster, you know, down that line. And you can find more about that at realwealthbooks.com. It's exciting. Excited to check it out. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm excited to release it to the world, man. I'm, I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping other people are excited, excited about it as I am to, you know, to kind of put that information out there. Absolutely. So, Willie, how can people get in contact with you? Sure. Two places. I think East Instagram. Everybody and their mothers on Instagram now. So I'm at uh, Real Wealth Builders and at WJ Mandrell on Instagram. Real Wealth Builders and at WJ Mandrell. Those are my two, uh, my two places. Perfect. Well, Willie, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure having you on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Sean. Cool. Take care. Here are some key takeaways from this episode. Buying and holding in an expensive market isn't out of reach if you're able to make the numbers work. Willie's buying in an area where property values are high, but rents are pretty high as well. He's able to get around $3,000 per month per unit once it's renovated, and he's able to acquire the properties at a significantly reduced price. If you want to buy an expensive market, you need to have your financing in place. So get in contact with a local lender who can help you with a portfolio loan. Willie is also heavily involved in his community. He's walked through every street in a few neighborhoods and is consistently reaching out to his network for deals. So out of the hundreds of deals that come to his desk, he'll probably only pick up one or two. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, Let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.